So if you have your Bibles, we are in Ephesians chapter 2. And we are only two sermons away from finishing chapter 2. We'll begin chapter 3 in three weeks. But it is important. I know you guys are surprised. I know. I know the jokes. You have to remember, I haven't preached for two weeks. And I normally preach, how long, church? An hour. So you got three hours worth of Jeremy today. This is great. Love it. So, yeah, everybody get comfortable. It's good. That's why we pass out pens so you can doodle while I'm talking. We are in Ephesians. Ephesians is the unfathomable riches of Christ. And just to refresh our memories real quick and kind of get us up to speed, Ephesians has a very logical division that's going on. When Paul wrote this, he actually wrote this as what's called a cyclical letter. So it was meant to be received, copied down, digested by the recipients, but then passed on to someone else, another church, so that they could also benefit from the treasures that were in it. And so you find in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul wants to talk solely about all of the wonderful things that God has done for us in Christ. And in Christ is the banner which is raised above those three chapters. Why? Because as someone who might not know Jesus whatsoever, when we come to terms with the idea that we're sinners and we need a Savior, let me tell you this real quick and plainly, and I tell you this because I love you. Some of you may not know this, and that's fine. Some of you are like, this is old hat, I get this. But here's the thing, no one else can save you. That's one thing that we've got to get over, because Satan has done a great job weaving this world system. If we would just do this, if we would just plan this, Forgive me, if we would just vote for this person, things would be better. We'd be saved. And let me tell you, all that's lies. There's only one king. And he stands in the wings. And it's going to be a glorious day when he kindly Removes everybody else off the scene. And I almost picture like somebody getting mad in a game of chess and just going, we're not playing this game anymore. And he's going to establish his kingdom. Well, the amazing thing about this is, is that he offers salvation that he died to provide freely. And this is one way, by his grace. It's the grace of God of which he stoops down to rescue sinful people. We can never die for our sins. We can never make up for it, never pay God back. Anything that we try to muster as some sort of works of thinking, oh, I've got some worth here before God. No. We have got to stop with self-esteem. And we have got to get hooked on God-esteem. Because only what God says about us is true. Nothing else. And so what does God say about the person who doesn't know Christ? Well, number one, He says that you're created in His image and His likeness. You know what that tells me? It's intentional and it's full of purpose. God obviously has a plan because he's not going to sit here and say, let's make some people in the model and image of me and put them forth and be like, and now they do whatever we want. I just don't care anymore. That's not how God operates. He cares deeply because he is our creator. If you've ever made something that you value greatly, only to find that your kids have come and maybe done something with it. Like knocked over your symbol stand and dented your favorite symbol. If you happen to own a drum set, I don't know if that relates to you. 
And the only reason why you close your eyes is because you're trying to keep them from popping out of your skull. Anybody know that feeling? Well, I don't. So, just kidding. Anytime his kids mess up, it grieves him. And he sees our helplessness. In fact, if you remember from Psalm 103, we covered that a while back, just a little bit. He knows our frame that we are yet dust. I don't know about you, but that's powerful. Because he knows me inside and out. He knows exactly what I'm made of. And he knows exactly how helpless I am. In fact, he knows how helpless I am more than I do. I would like to think I got some clout somewhere. Jesus knows better. So what does he do? He dies for me. Why? Because he understands that I can't die for me. He understands that nobody else can die for me. And that the death has to be perfect. Because we have perfectly sinned against him. And we need a perfect rescue. We are getting PhDs in sin. He's getting PhDs in grace. And he's getting PhDs in salvation. And he is magna cum laude as far as loving people. And so in extending that to us, he simply asks, will you believe in me? Are you firmly convinced that I can save you? Do you have that conviction? And in doing so, we are now transferred from the kingdom of darkness, heading to the kingdom of darkness in this world, helpless as can be, and we're moved into a brand new location called In Christ. And the reason why I give you that longer introduction is because, number one, I haven't preached in two weeks. I don't know where everybody is in Ephesians. Uh, but, but number two, the reason is to recognize is that when you read through chapters 1, 2, and 3, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And what's amazing is everything that happens in Christ is directed towards us because of Christ. So Christ does it all, and he says, here, 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 here. And he just gives and gives and gives. And I read through this passage, and I think, if this says anything, number one, it says I must need a lot. Because look at everything that Jesus did for me. And number two, it creates great appreciation to where I want to worship him. In spirit and truth. Why? Because I'm reflecting on gifts and gifts and gifts. And I still know how undeserving I am. This is the magnitude of grace. And so just to explain that a little bit, he says, For by grace you have been saved, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Or let me paraphrase for you. You ain't got nothing to do with it. Real quick, Faith, are you from the South? Dang. I heard her say y'all and my heart jumped up here a little bit ago. I was like, yeah. It's okay. The South will accept you. So, y'all are wrong. Y'all got nothing to bring to the table. And neither do I. But that's why it's by grace. Notice it. All of it is by God's gracious disposition. All the work needed is done on behalf of Christ the Savior. It is only channeled to us through one way, and that's faith. What is faith? Faith is the firm conviction that something is true. So it's only channeled to us in that way. Not of yourselves. It is the gift. What is the gift? By grace, through faith, salvation. This left side killing me. Not as a result of works. And let's not get it confused. Those are our works. 
Our works do nothing. In fact, our works are done so imperfectly that they only stand as a greater testimony against ourselves of how much we get it wrong. There's no self-esteem here at Grace Bible Church. Okay? But what this does in coming to terms with it, yes, I know I'm a despicable person. Cool. God didn't want to leave you that way. This is when God invades with love. This is when God picks up from the mud. And this is when God draws you unto himself and embraces you forever. You can never be captured out of his grasp. You will never be away from him again. That's grace. So notice, our work's no good here. Why? Because if we did, we would boast. Why is this? Because we are his workmanship. Does anybody remember what the word workmanship is? It's a masterpiece. It's the Greek word poema, which is the idea of a poem or something that is carefully crafted, thought about, intentionally done, refined, and gone over again and again. And then when it's spread out, it's breathtaking. Have you ever thought of the church as breathtaking? Breathtaking. That's what God has for the church. Notice, for we, it's plural. The whole church. Paul includes himself. Everybody remember this? Personal inclusive pronoun. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a reason. Good works. Jesus is very clear with his disciples in John 13. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We were created to do good things. Understand that these good things are not best intentions and these good things are not what I could muster. It's not our achievements. The good works are only accomplished by the church getting out of God's way so that Christ can be all in the head of the church. Does that make sense? So anytime that we're looking to help God out, like Abraham and Sarah wanted to help God out and brought Hagar into the situation, we end up in a lot of trouble creating great conflict. The idea is that we would actually put our hands behind our heads and surrender it all to Christ so that He can be all in all through the church and everything that radiates and is done in good works from the church is actually supernatural in content because it can't be any other way. There's nothing carnal blocking Christ from being everything. So in doing that, notice, He prepared them beforehand, so these are intentional, thought out, planned, so that reason we would walk. We would live in them. This is a recreation of lifestyle for the church. Anybody visited other churches lately? Do they all seem the same? No? That's good. I would think that they would. That kind of blows my mind what we see in the American church going on in some situations now. There seems to be a lot of it that's just being downgraded severely. Well, it's not supposed to be that way. It's not about the human efforts. It's about human submission. That's what it's about. The effort is Christ. Our job is to trust. So, he brings this up. Big test, Roxanne. Here you go. You got it? Therefore, Oh my gosh, you Bible students, it's so beautiful. Therefore, what's that therefore? Let me tell you. 
Since our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and there are no works of which we cannot boast in, and we are actually His created masterpiece that He desires for Christ's good works to flow through, and therefore we should walk in obedience to Him, He wants us to remember that formerly, past, the Gentiles, that's us unless you've got Jewish blood, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, those are the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by hands. Now, real quick, anybody says that sarcasm isn't biblical, mark down Ephesians 2.11. Paul had the spiritual gift of sarcasm, okay? So notice he's calling them out here for carnal markings. If I'll just do this, it makes me closer to God. No. If we've ever done anything apart from being convinced of it in the Word of God, we've done it in the flesh. It can't be any other way. Because here's what we do. Everybody ready? I think it should be done this way. Anybody in here opinionated? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe not. All right. Done by human hands. So therefore, it's works of which I should be accepted by God. Time out. Aren't you already accepted by God because of what Jesus did? So it's not about my works gaining any acceptance. It's about my works radiating glory. Why? Because I'm already accepted. So notice, Gentiles were once far off. And here's what it is. Remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, there was an incredible disadvantage of the nations. If you'll think back to what you know in your Genesis history, when you get from 1 to 11, you're dealing with worldwide stuff. But then God does something really strange when a brand new dispensation comes in. And he takes a step back from everything and he grabs one guy and he says, hey you, leave there, go there, and I'm going to do amazing things through you. And Abram, who is presently worshiping the sun god and what would later become Babylon, says, okay. And he gets up and he leaves. And God makes an everlasting covenant with him, a contract. And in doing so, he begins the race of the Jewish people and sets them aside that they would become his megaphone to the nations of what true righteousness looked like so that the Creator would be extolled above everything else. Now, there's way more to say about that, and I'm not going to have time to get into it, but notice the disadvantages of the rest of the nations. Number one, separate from Christ. What's that mean? No Messiah, no Savior. Number two, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. There's no heritage of blessing. There's no past faithfulness track record of God with them of which they could use to bolster courage in current conflict. They just don't have it. How about this? Strangers of the covenants of promise. No contractual obligations. Do you realize that in all of history, if you look up every religion that there's ever possibly been of which we have any information about, none of them, have ever made a contract with human beings except Yahweh Elohim, the creator of all things. He has actually stooped down and has signed his name on the dotted line and essentially says, if this doesn't come true, may I be damned. It is God putting his very character and reputation on the line. Now, why is that important for us? Because it's everything that prophecy is built on. It's everything that how we know how to interpret the end times and what's going to come. Anybody surprised by inflation? Okay, anybody surprised by famine? 
Anybody surprised by pestilence and sickness and any of these things? In war and rumors of war? Anybody? No, because you go through and you read the Bible and you're like, huh, that's going to happen. And what's God saying? Ding, 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 ding. It's here. Here we go. Here it comes. Be ready at any moment. He warns us in advance. Well, these contractual obligations set the stage for how we understand that. Why? Because God is not going to break His covenant. It doesn't happen. The next one, they have no hope. No security. No security. None. Which means they don't have a future. What's, what, what's Grace Bible Church going to look like in five years? Hopefully bigger. Yeah? Hey, just real quick, as long as everybody keeps wearing deodorant, we can all still meet in here, okay? I'm okay with it. But hopefully bigger. But will it change? Will God change? See that? Different things happen amongst people all the time. What's amazing is, is we have an unchanging God who is the constant. And because He is the constant, there's always security, regardless of what's going on amongst ourselves. Well, we didn't have that at one time. Israel did. We did not. How about this? Without God in the world, no guidance or provision. Wandering aimlessly. Never hitting the target because you don't know what it is. But now, here's what's interesting. But now, and I love this, and I know that I'm rehashing this from three weeks ago. We're still in introduction, people. But now, present, in Christ Jesus, here's the location what that is, L-O-C, location. And what does it mean but now? Now that Jesus has died on the cross, 40 days have taken place, Jesus ascends after teaching His disciples about the kingdom, and He tells them, don't leave Jerusalem, I'm going to send the Helper to you. Then you will go and you'll be My witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. A brand new dispensation is getting ready to take place, and it's what's known as the church. Something brand new that God had never done before. So notice, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly passed were far off, have been brought near. And we say, thank you. But how did that happen? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the effectual agent that reaches out to us, not having any of these previous things, and says, come here. That's what the blood does. The blood comes after us. You say, that's kind of gross. Stick with me here. Okay? Now we're into our sermon today. Verse 14. For, what is that church? Causal conjunction. He's going to explain about Jesus and the blood of Christ. He's got to unfold the benefits that have come out of this for our understanding. For why? He Himself is our peace. Did everybody see that? Notice it's not make a peace treaty. Notice it's not have a conversation to achieve peace. Notice it's not visualize world peace. Notice it's not we're going to have an accord to try to reach peace. Notice that there's none of that involved. Notice that peace is number one thing, eternally speaking, supernaturally from God's perspective. Peace is a what? Does anybody know? It's a person. Recognize this. Because if you meditate on this fact, it will absolutely change your mind, heart, life, and thinking. Peace is a person. Peace is a person. If peace were to be personified, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so now that he's done that, Christ is, what tense is that? Present. Right now. You say, I just wish I had some peace in my life. Time out. Do you know Jesus? Yes, you have peace. You're just not taking advantage of all that he offers. So often we're so worried about changing ourselves, we failed to get a glimpse of who he is. Looking at him changes who we are, not changing us and so we get closer to him. That's backwards. That's completely backwards. In fact, dangerous. Scripture just came to my mind. Go to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is talking here about the difference between those who are under, are under the law and those who are under grace. And those who are under grace have received the Holy Spirit. So in doing so, he's, he's, he's transitioning these two and showing how the law is passing off the scene. And now here comes the Spirit and he's able to grant brand new life because he regenerates the believer. He makes those who were dead in trespasses and sins alive. And notice what he says here in verse 17, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. I tell you what liberty is not. It's not law. It's brand new living in the grace of Christ. Now how does that happen? Watch this. This is an amazing verse. You can meditate on this for a month and still not pull it all apart. Verse 18. But we all, everybody see that Paul includes himself? Does anybody see that Paul includes himself? Okay, just want to make sure. You guys know Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, right? He only wrote 1 Corinthians. Luke, you take 2 Corinthians. I'm tired. No. But we all, the church, with unveiled face, you know what that means? The law has no bearing on us at all. We've now been brought into this new relationship, this new locale in Christ Jesus, and anything that would have blocked us from the presence of God has been ripped off and cast away. Okay? So notice, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. Now real quick, you King James folks, I love you to death. It's probably the better translation. Beholding as in a glass. As if you would step back and take the time to observe carefully, fawn over and desire to intake everything of a scenery that you've got before you. That's the idea here. So it's like you're holding something out there and you're beholding it, you know? For some reason, I feel like Shakespeare, like I should have a skull or something. But you guys get it. Like checking something out, you know? Everything about this that I would possibly, I don't have an object. I wasn't planning on this. But everything that I would need to know about this, really taking it in for everything that it's worth. Chewing the cud, soaking it in, being the sponge kind of thing. Notice it says here, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Pause. He just called Jesus Christ the glory of the Lord. In other words, now that the law or any stipulations for acceptance have been taken away and there are no works at all that anybody could ever do in all of history to ever be saved, and Jesus Christ is put in the forefront because He is the glory of God, and all we do is look and behold 
Him. We just observe His person. We learn everything that He's done for us. We take in the very being of all that He's done. And every time it's in Christ, it's because of His decision to make that action so that it would pour over onto us. And we just ingest this continually. We look at it like I want to look at Starry Night and just check it out. The brush strokes or whatever it looks like. The colors and how they work together. And just pull this thing in. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Look what it says. We are being transformed. Pause, church. How do you get transformed? You behold Jesus. You behold Jesus and He transforms you into the same image. From glory to glory. I thought you said we were creating the image and likeness of God. We are. But now God wants to take you as redeemed and conform you to the image of His Son. That's why we look forward to glorification. Glorification is going to be sweet. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to be super happy about all that when it takes place. But what's going to be amazing is, is not necessarily about what's happening to me as much as it is about the more that I get to see of Christ. That's the difference. Do you seek Christ? Do you want Christ? What stands right now between you and beholding Him as the glory of God towards us? Whatever it is, is putting a stop on your life where you can't move forward. Because when we exalt Christ and look at Him for everything that He is worth, what does it say? You're going to be transformed into the same image of glory. That's how transformation in the life happens. Notice it's not a New Year's resolution. It's not putting that rubber band on your wrist to pop yourself when you do something silly. Notice it's not any of the attempts at a better person that we try to make. It's simply becoming enraptured and full of our Savior. That's what it's about. And so it says here, that image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, and notice He just throws us in here and it's kind of strange, the Spirit. In other words, it's the Spirit that communicates that truth and the Spirit that does that work. Does everybody understand that any change that happens in your life as a believer in Christ is Spirit-wrought change? It's not us. So often we think, now that I'm in the door, Lord, thank you, have a seat, and I'll start learning what it is to be a good person from the Scriptures. No! That's you saying, thank you for grace, now I'll take law, and that's how we're going to move forward. That's the Galatian error. You Galatians, who bewitched you? Right? Everybody think alike. What's that guy's name? Darren York or whatever? Uh, Tabitha running around the house? Not you, Tabitha, but you know what I mean. She's doing that thing, whatever. Who bewitched you? That woman came into the Galatian, not really, but that woman came into the Galatian church and got them convinced that now that they've been saved by grace, they just need to keep some rules in order to grow and do better. Foolishness. Having begun by the Spirit, can you now be perfected in the flesh? No. What good did the flesh do to get you into Christ's presence? Nothing. What can the flesh do to help you continue deeper in Christ's presence? Nothing. And We've got to get that straight. So then how does it happen? You put the divine compass, the glory of the Lord and Jesus Christ before you and you walk forward. You keep your eyes on Him no matter what. Now, that was free. I'm not charging extra for that. Let's go back to Ephesians.
Ephesians chapter 2. Very important for us to understand. He Himself is our peace. Now how is this demonstrated? How does this unfold? Well, here's what He did. Who? That's Him. He made both groups into one. Unity. Division. He took a division and He put them together. Now understand this. The church has not replaced Israel. Romans 11.1, God still has a plan for Israel. You can't read the Scriptures and come to a different conclusion. I don't understand why that's a thing. The church has not become the true Israel. Okay? That's a theological construct that people have come to. It doesn't make any sense. Well, what do we see? Well, we found out the idea that something needed to be broke down. It's a barrier. It's a dividing wall. And, not only that, it's considered enmity in verse 15. Jesus had to abolish in His flesh. You know what that is? The cross. In the cross, He died, and not just, you get to go to heaven now when you die. That happened, that's great and glorious, praise God, amen, but good grief. There is a cornucopia, yes I use that word, of so many other things that took place when Jesus died on the cross. And one of the great things He did was He took the self-imposed superiority that the Jewish race had. We have the law. We have Abraham as our father. We have Moses. You know, we have the Pharisees. We have all this stuff. We have the promises of God. And He took all that stuff and He went and brought them down a few notches. And then He took the Gentiles who were fall away and He drew them in through the blood of Christ and He put them all on an equal playing field that was only able to be entered in one way alone. By faith. So now when He dies on the cross... Whatever was standing in the way is now out of the way. Now what is that? This enmity, go back real quick, this barrier, this dividing wall, and these are all ways of describing the exact same thing. So everybody think of like a solid structure that you just can't get through. What in the world is keeping these two groups of Jews and Gentiles, the entire world is summed up in those two phrases, in together it happened. Well, Jesus has got to come in and he's got to die. And when he dies, he sets off a bomb in front of this wall and knocks it out. What is the wall? The law of commandments contained in ordinances. Or, let me give you this, the Mosaic law. The law was never given in order for that to be an alternative means of how someone could come to God and be accepted. No one could ever keep it. You know, you don't even need Ten Commandments. Just try two and see how that goes for a little while. In fact, let's make that like a class project for the rest of the day. You know, out of the ten, you just pick two, write them down, keep them in your pocket, you know, your purse, whatever, have them sitting there. You can look at, how am I doing with this so far? How am I doing with not coveting? Oh, that car's sweet. You know? How are we doing with that? We won't do well. It was never a means of that. But what it was meant to do was to reflect upon us our sinfulness because it perfectly explains sin. So the law can never redeem us. It can never save us. But it can certainly condemn us. And when it does so, it does so perfectly. So all I know as far as the righteous standards of God, is the law bad? The law's not bad. The law is God telling me what's right and wrong. Well, if He's telling me what's right, it's got to be good. The bad is me. 
So that serves as a barrier. I can't get to God because the righteous requirements are too much for me. I can't get to God because they stand in the way. And Jews and Gentiles definitely can't get together because they're trying to act righteous by the things they do in their hands. And we're all running around over here going like, man, we don't even know what's going on. We Savior? Who? What? Huh? The cross comes in and goes. And brings them together. Into what is known as this. One new man brand new equal footing because the cross has laid everything bare notice this the law of commandments and ordinances let me you you may ask this question i want to go ahead and answer it but turn with me to romans 10 i want you to look at verse 4 and this is a good one to mark in your bible just to have on you could go through galatians and find especially into two and three Find some things like this as well. But uh, this is a very succinct statement that brings the sum of all of it together because the question is often, now that I'm a believer in Christ, what role does the law play for the Christian? And I've I've seen books and, and heard people talk about how because of the ethics and the morals going on in the law, now Christians are under the law and how they live their life. And it makes me wonder if they've ever read the book of Galatians at all. But, chapter 10, look at verse 4. It's very plain, so watch this. For Christ is the end of the what? He's the end of the law. Now notice what it says. He's not just the end, not just a car crash right into the wall and stopped kind of thing. No, not that type of end. Watch this. He's the end of the law for what? Righteousness. Pause. Let me ask you a question. The person who is unsaved, do they need anything else but the righteousness of God in order to be accepted by God? Isn't that the gospel? That when Christ died, He died perfectly. And the righteousness that He provides and offers to us to impute to us, your $5 Jeopardy word for the day, to transfer into our account is His righteousness. Or let me say it this way. In order for God to accept you and me, we've got to have a righteousness like His. And we don't. So Christ, being God, dies and says, hey, you need God's righteousness? Here it is. Believe and be saved. So that means whenever God looks at you as a believer in Christ, He sees you as righteous as Jesus in His sight because you have Jesus' righteousness. You didn't steal it. It's not a mistake. It's not a user error or a technical difficulty. It's simply God's promise fulfilling out in the Savior. So what role does the law play? Well, notice what it says. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Seems clear to me. If you've responded in faith to Christ, the law has no bearing on you. You know what that means? Here's what's great. God has no demanding expectations of you whatsoever. Isn't that a load off your plate? I don't know that I'm being a good Christian right now. Can I help you? You're not. And guess what? I'm not either. There are no good Christians. I was talking with a friend of mine. He said, man, I'm not being a very good Christian. I said, because you're not one. We're not good people. That's why we need a Savior. 
In fact, as soon as we start thinking of ourselves as good Christians, it's interesting how Christ goes into the shadows. Yet how does transformation happen? By beholding Him. You ever see that? So we can't afford to have Him going in the shadows whatsoever. He's got to be front, center, central. I love what Faith says. He is the centerpiece of everything I do. I love that. She told that to me and I thought, I've got to steal that. But I can't do it in clear conscience, so I've got to give her credit if she's here. So... But it's a fantastic way to look at it. Why? Because it keeps Jesus right in the middle of all of it. He is the effectual change, not us. Law-keeping, it has no place. None. We could never be good enough to even keep one of the commandments, much less all of them. So going back here to Ephesians 2, notice that it's the abolishing in His flesh, the cross that takes place, in Himself, that's Christ, He might make the two into one. And notice what it says here. Not only is Jesus, not only Jesus is our peace. Sorry, that's grammatically weird, but I'm trying to think about how to put it out there. Jesus is our peace. Peace is personified in a person. It's obvious that that four extends off of the idea of his blood, and only Jesus can provide that blood because that blood is the perfect payment. So in doing so, he is our peace, but check this out. He establishes peace he is the peace that's necessary for our situation and he makes peace a reality across the board that's really cool notice why and he might reconcile them both jew and gentile in one body this is the one new man Everybody's worried about the new world order. Stop it. It's the one new man we ought to be concerned about. In one body to God. Why? This word reconcile. Because that's where we were always supposed to be anyway. When God initially created us, pre-sin, the habitation was the presence of God. Knowing Him intimately. Having that conversation. His special creation alongside the Creator Himself. Until sin comes in, and get this, Adam's first response when he knows the Lord is coming is to do what? You ever thought about that? I mean, let's be honest. If I'm at home, and also it's like, here comes my wife. Something's wrong. Something's real wrong. Good grief how the conviction can't help but to play out in that scenario. So now that that happens, God goes to the painstaking means of supplying to His offenders. And in doing so, He brings reconciliation. If you have your little booklet or you like to write in your Bible, maybe you've got it there as a note, I don't know. Colossians 1. Would you turn there with me just for a moment? If, you, if you're not aware of this, Colossians is a sister book to Ephesians. Ephesians unfolds all the benefits in Christ towards the believer. Colossians exalts the person of Christ amidst the believer. And so if you look at verse 19, 
verse one or chapter one. It says, "For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him." In other words, when we talk about the idea of deity incarnate, Jesus Christ is perfectly God. But it says here, verse twenty, and through Him to what's the word, church? Reconcile all things to Himself, having made what? Why? Because He is our peace and He establishes peace. Let me give you this definition of reconcile I found. This is from Vines, if you have a a, a Vines Concordance word study book. To bring the whole universe into full accord with the mind of God. His desires for everyone. The plan was set forward for everyone. Why? To bring them all to peace. When you reconcile, the infighting with God is over. And so peace is now established because peace is a person. Peace is established because the person of peace has the ability to do it. Now, notice that it says, having made peace, how? Through the blood of His cross. The blood is indispensable to peace. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Natural, supernatural, seen, unseen, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is the peace and He establishes the peace. Go back to Ephesians real quick because I just realized what time it is. We've got to finish this up. Here we go. So notice, might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, and that entails blood. Everybody remember that from the end of verse 13. By it having put to death the enmity. Put it to death. The cross was a knife to the throat of everything that divided us from one another and divided us from God. God understood that sin needed to be slayed. And in doing so, he had to destroy and abolish the law from having an effectual bearing on us. Why? Because all the law did was tell us how much we're wrong. Some of us have spouses like that. I don't. But y'all might. Okay? For real. But the law is our greatest problem to get over. And so notice that God, through Jesus Christ, puts it to death. It's done. It's over. Don't even fret about it anymore, because it died. Everybody remember the biblical definition of death? Separation. It means that now we're in this new locale in Christ Jesus. The law has been severed and separated from our situation. So when somebody comes in and says, well, don't you know the Bible, just in case this has ever happened to you, don't you know the Bible says that you can't have tattoos? It does. In Leviticus. Because Maxine, I know they go after you on this one. Wait a second. The law has no bearing on me. Well, don't you believe the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I believe that I should rightly interpret it in light of the death of Jesus Christ who has set me free from the bondage of sin and death and has set me on a brand new life. And it's His life He wants to live, not my life. That's the beauty of beholding Christ. Because when we get these truths in front of our minds, Satan could not stop what would happen here. But we've got to get it in. We've got to be beholding Him. Let me finish this real quick. Quoting from Isaiah, He came and He preached. This is the other interesting thing. Notice that Jesus is our peace. 
He establishes peace. And here's the great thing. He preaches peace. He preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Why? For causal conjunction. Let's explain that. Through Him. Oh, good grief. I'm so thankful this thing has an eraser. Jesus. Through Jesus, we both, Paul, Jew, and Gentile, have presently our access. Pause. Access. Great word. If you, if you get a chance to check the pastor's blog and check out notes on this. Great word. Great word. Let me find it in my notes here. Access. The idea of not just opening a door, but notice it says access in one spirit. When you're dead in trespasses and sins, you're separated from God. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and regenerates you, makes you alive with Christ. And the idea of this Greek word access is the idea of bringing you into the presence of God and introducing you to Him. Father, here's your long lost child. They've come home. The position that they always should have been in that you held a place for, guess what? They're here to fill that. It's a welcoming that comes in. Notice, in one spirit to the Father. Everybody notice the Trinitarian aspect of it? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Indispensable in working together. Why? In pursuit of people. God loves people. And God will go as far as He has to to put His Son and have all of this explosion of beautiful consequences that come out of His death in order to right this world and ourselves and create this brand new masterpiece called the church. Only the blood of Christ can do this. Keep this in mind. He is our peace. I messed up the slide. That's why I'm writing it. He established, I'm thankful this is blank right now. He establishes our peace. And he preaches peace. If there's anything that the church should be telling this world right now, peace has already been had. Let me tell you how to have peace. It's not a concept. It's not a treaty. It's not a meeting. It's not something we've got to waste millions and trillions of dollars on doing. It's one thing. It's the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised from the dead by the power of the Father. That is peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You for the blood. We praise You that You are exceedingly abundantly. That's just sticking with me today. Above all, I could ask or think a Savior of incredible magnitude, multifaceted, at no loss for answers, beautiful in every way. The fact that You are peace. That You establish peace. That You preach peace. Father, I bet we know some people that need to hear about peace. Who are overridden with anxiety because they have no hope, because they have no Savior. You bring that peace. You are that peace. Who have been in a depth of depression for time and time again, up and down, 
You are that peace that can be established, that sets a firm foundation of peace. That comes about one way. We need to preach peace. We need to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us as believers to not fall into the trap of repeated expectations for Your acceptance, but recognize that Christ has abolished the law and it's simply by beholding Him in His person. All that He is, all that He's done, all that He has said. That we don't have to force change and we don't have to enact change and we don't have to try to change, but He will change us into His image. The Spirit does that work, but the object of our affection has got to be the Savior. Lord, help us to inventory what we value most in our lives. And then ask the question, is it Jesus? And Lord, if it's not, clean house. Come in and overturn our tables. Because we are obviously wheeling and dealing in sinful ways. Because Christ is not our centerpiece, our central focus, the object of our desire. Father, work, move in how you need to in my life, in our lives, in our church, in all that you bless us with. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.